Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 11th, we are studying Amos chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. Economic and political prosperity for the people of Israel in the 8th century BC filled them with pride. Pride that has turned them away from the true worship of the Lord. Pride that has led them into great shame and vice against their neighbor. Pride that will bring upon them the Lord's destruction. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, good to be with you. Pastor Vandercook, help us out this morning. We're coming out of the weekend. Get us started with some context here in, in Amos chapter 6. How do we get to where we are today? Well, if you look back all the way at the beginning of Amos, of course, you get the, the context the entire book was written in, the time period that it was written in. Um, and it's set, you know, between 792 and 740 B.C. The Assyrians are going to invade Israel within the next uh, 20 years or so. But at this point in time, uh, it is a time of, as you mentioned in the opening there, a time of prosperity uh, for the people of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdom. Uh, both are in, enjoying a time of um, uh, a time of economic prosperity, of political prosperity, military success, and so forth. Uh, the two kings that are ruling over the two kingdoms of Israel you have in the north, uh, Jeroboam, and of course, if you recall from uh, you know back right after the reign of, of David and Solomon, you have Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, who becomes king over. The northern kingdom when the kingdom divides and he's not a good king at all uh, he in fact introduces uh, just outright uh, idolatry into the northern kingdom because he doesn't want the people to keep going down to jerusalem to worship and so he, he erects these high places in bethel and in dan and and the kings that come after him don't do anything about these high places and so jeroboam uh, the Jeroboam that is king during uh, Amos's ministry, Jeroboam II, sometimes he's called Jeroboam, son of Joash. Uh, he does not remove those uh, those high places and idols. But the the thing that does happen for Israel, the northern kingdom during his reign, is that their borders expand once again, almost to the same levels that they were at uh, during the the early uh, the, the glory days of Israel, if you will, during the reigns of King David and King Solomon. Uh, and to go along with that, you have uh, so he's he's referred to. You have these phrases in the in the uh, especially in the first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles that kind of denote the the evil kings, the the ones that do not do right, the ones who um, in the northern kingdom anyway repeat the sins of their of Jeroboam son of the bat. Um, but you also have some good kings that are sprinkled in here and there, more so in the southern kingdom than in the northern. Uh, and Uzziah, who is king in Judah during the time of Amos, is actually called a good king in Second Chronicles 26. But later on in his reign, he starts to become prideful because of his success as well. So in general, the, the climate there uh, in Israel is that the people have taken pride in their own uh, accomplishments or what they think are their own accomplishments, rather than recognizing that, that God is the one who has granted them uh, success. Yeah, the the conquests, I think, are particularly applicable to the text that we're going to have today, because it, it seems that there's going to be some references in, in our text to some of those victories that would have expanded the territory, as you said, and the people were taking pride in them. And the Lord says, no, you shouldn't be taking pride in them. Really, the, the boasting, right, to use Pauline language, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The people are taking right. pride in themselves rather than than in the Lord. So that, that's a good good setup for 
today's text here that we've got in Amos chapter 6. Let's go ahead and, and read it and then start digging in. Amos 6 verses 8 through 14. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low devar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. There is the text that we've got before us in Amos chapter 6. Pastor Vandercook, it gets started with a, a pretty strong phrase there in verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. Why is that opening of verse 8 so significant? Well, you know, the, the first thing that probably or at least comes to my mind whenever I see somebody swearing, period, is I think about the uh, the second commandment where uh, the Lord talks about the proper use of his name, uh, and there we have the meaning from the catechism of force, of course, that we are not to curse, swear, use satanic arts, liar, deceive by his name, and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's that idea of, well, the Lord's swearing by his name. Uh, and of course, the reason we're not supposed to swear by the Lord's name is because we're not to use the Lord's name in support of evil. Uh, but of course, in this case, we have the Lord swearing by his own name, and because of that, there's no higher thing that he could possibly be referring to. He refers to the highest thing possible. Uh, so it's a guarantee that, that what he's about to say is going to happen. Um, he uses similar language. The Lord uses similar language, for example, when he creates the, the covenant or announces the covenant he's made with Abraham uh, way back in Genesis. And, you know, there it's a swearing for a good thing uh, in that he's uh, swearing or giving a, a promise to Abraham that uh, he will, um, you know, make a great nation of him and that all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Uh, but now this is something altogether different. This is the, the taking away almost really of that blessing. So yeah, it's very strong language. Uh, and it's, you can, it's, it's like a guarantee that this, this stuff, these things, these, these, uh, this destruction that the Lord is about to announce, uh, you, you better be sure that it's going to happen. The word of the Lord is certain already in and of itself. And so when the Lord swears by himself, it, it's an absolute guarantee that this thing that he is speaking will happen. And, and as you pointed out, once again, we're seeing Amos take language that was used in gospel ways throughout other places of scripture and he turns it on his head on its head now and uses it in in a law way so so the promise that the lord makes to abraham he swears by himself that he's he's going to give him the the descendants right that's the the promise that he swears by himself in in genesis now right. the lord swears by himself that that rather destruction is coming and so again you you see amos using that that shocking language. Um, I want you to to dig in a little bit more to the to the connection to the the second commandment. I, I I do love talking about the catechism, and you've you've got this in your notes, catechism connection. So I think we should we maybe need to make a little segment in our program here called Catechism Connections with Pastor Vandercook. So Pastor Vandercook, <laughs> help us help us start connecting this text to the the second commandment. You mean as a whole or just this verse in particular? Particularly this verse, and then maybe we'll, I think we're going to develop that as it goes. <clears throat> yeah, well, you know, as I said, you have, uh, you know, the Lord 
both in the you know the second commandment. I think you, you can also talk about the eighth commandment with this a little bit as well, because in the eighth commandment, uh, we talk about uh, upholding our neighbor's good name, and that is, you know, that uh, we we in a, in a court it's almost a courtroom type setting there, where whenever we we attach the name of the Lord, where we're given the right to swear rightly by the Lord's name, uh, it's whenever we're doing it in support of the truth, out of love for our neighbor. Uh, in this case, you know, again, um, the the Lord swears by himself here. And, uh, you know, again, we, we might, as I said, we, we usually have a negative connection. I think that's that's good that we immediately should say, wait a second, we need to use the, na- the, the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord uh, properly. Uh, and if we're not using that name properly, if we're using it in support of evil, uh, then that's that there, there's something wrong there. Uh, but in this case, again, it's the Lord speaking, so things are a little bit different in that um, uh, in that He's He is swearing to the truth. He's guaranteeing that this thing is going to happen because uh, you know, as you said, the the word of the Lord is something that's sure and certain in itself. And so when the Lord attaches that additional uh, thing, you know, that He swears by Himself. Yeah, we ought to pay attention uh, because uh, the name of the Lord comes with uh, a promise attached to it. You know, in our baptism, uh, the Lord puts puts His name on us, uh, and that that's significant. You know, we remember it each time we hear the the triune name of the Lord that we've been baptized into His name, uh, and we have those those things that are attached to, it, and we can we have those guarantees that come along with that. Uh, and so here also, again, we have guarantees, things that are promised in the name of the Lord, swearing by his name. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, as you mentioned too, uh, it's obviously not a gospel thing here at all. This is this is pure law, and really this entire section of Amos is, is all law. Mm. Yeah, and the thing about the second commandment you know, we we tend to think of the the swearing, right? And and that and that's that's good. But th- to think of the positive thing that the Lord wants to give us in the second commandment, that He wants us to use His name properly, as you were bringing out there with with baptism. And so when we when we receive the Lord's name as gift and to use it as He's given to us, then then it is full of blessings for us as, as He's given it to us in holy baptism. But for the people of Israel at this time, as as we're going to see, I think as the text continues, they've been misusing His name, and so now the name of the Lord comes to them in this in this law way. You think about um, you know typically when we memorize the Catechism, we, we memorize "You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God." And that's where it stops. But in Exodus chapter 20, it continues there where it says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So obviously the Lord takes Ah. this matter very seriously. And and we're seeing it here in the way that the Lord invokes his own name, not as a blessing to his people, but now to, to actually in destruction to his people. And so the, the, oath that he makes then is that he he says, I abhor, I hate. We get that very strong language from the Lord, like we heard at the end of chapter five, where, where he tells them that he hates their worship. Now he says, this time he says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. And this is, this is what I had tied into in, in my intro, the pride of Jacob. What's going on here, Pastor Vandercook? Well, yeah, the pride here you know, again, uh, is not, you, you know, we talk about having pride in what God has done and and what God has done through us and what God continues to do for us. Uh, but here that pride is not there. Here the pride is in the self. And this is another tie-in really for um, for the catechism here to the first commandment in particular, uh, you shall have no other gods. When you look back at uh, Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent in the garden. Uh, the serpent tempts them by saying, "Look, if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God." That's what they want to be, and so the, the you know that first sin that they commit is really the sin of pride. It's a sin of idolatry uh, that they are they are having this uh, the, you know they they want to be like God, uh, you know, and and really they make idols of themselves. Uh, and this is what's happening with Israel as well, is that it's the sin of pride. It's the sin against the first commandment that uh, 
that they want to be the ones running this show, and they believe that they have indeed accomplished all of the, uh, the, the military and political success that they have as a result of their own ingenuity, uh, rather than giving glory to God as they should. And so this is particularly the pride of Jacob. Uh, why the name Jacob here? Yeah, well, Jacob um, uh, is, you know, of course, Israel is Jacob. It's the, you know, Jacob was renamed Israel. So Jacob refers to really the whole of the northern and southern kingdoms when it's used. Um, it, it appears that most of what follows in these the verses that follow immediately here at the end of chapter 6 are dealing primarily with the northern kingdom, but uh, the Lord's judgment here is not just against uh, one half of uh, of the, of the um, uh, one half of Israel. It's actually against the northern and southern kingdoms. But the, the focus is more on the northern kingdom, I think, as we follow through here. But uh, but Jacob is, is used as a uh, as a way to denote really the entirety of the uh, of of the Israelites, uh, Israel and Judah combined. Right. We've seen that elsewhere in the book of Amos, where, again, as he primarily is preaching to the northern kingdom, it's not like he's forgotten what's going on in the southern kingdom. The Lord still has a word for Judah as well. And and often that term Jacob denotes that. I think, too, perhaps the pride of Jacob, using Jacob instead of Israel, invites us to reflect upon the man, Jacob, in the book of Genesis and and the course of his life and, and thinking perhaps of, you know, when you think about Jacob's story in the book of Genesis, uh, often, you know, we think of his deceit, his trickery, but I I think you could attribute pride to to Jacob as well. And as, you know, his interactions with, with sure. Laban also, I mean, I don't know, do, does that seem perhaps a connection there too, Pastor Vandercook? Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't given that much thought, honestly, but I, I think you're right that uh, well, and and if he just yeah, his interactions with Laban, but also with uh, with Esau, uh, you know, whenever he obtains Esau's birthright and blessing, he does it uh, kind of using trickery, you know, it and it it comes across as uh, one of those things, and oftentimes when I have the the discussion about that section of Genesis with Bible classes. Uh, I talk about the fact that, you know, it seems like why would the Lord allow uh, Jacob to do uh, these, these awful things? Why did the Lord allow him to be the, the chosen um, the son of the promise in all of this? And, and what you, uh, the way I've kind of always taught it is that one way, you know, the Lord was going to have Jacob be the son of the promise, no matter what uh, Jacob tried to do it on his own though, uh, you know, again, and that kind of fits with this very well. I think you're right that the the people of Israel here believe that they have accomplished all of this success using their own ingenuity, uh, when in fact it was the Lord who brought this about. When you look at the man Jacob, whether or not he and Rachel were going to conspire to uh, take away Esau's birthright and blessing, um, he was going to end up with it either way. It shows there was a lack of trust really on his part that the Lord would bring about his promises. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that was what the Lord told Rachel whenever she was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, was that the older would serve the younger and and so forth. And so it was going to happen. Uh, it's just that. Uh, and you look at, um, even go back to Abraham uh, and his, uh, his um, uh, how do you say, uh, he you know, he had the promise that he would be the father of many nations, but didn't have a child yet. So he and Sarah decided, oh, well, you know, if you have a child with Hagar, uh, maybe that's how the Lord will bring about his promise, you know. And again, man has constantly tried to kind of interfere with uh, the Lord and his word, and it shows a lack of trust in his word, really. Um, but here it's uh, – so I, I think there's there's a lot of similarities you could draw, certainly, from the history of, of uh, from Israel and also going back to the patriarchs. Yeah, that that matter of taking or taking matters into your own hands, even when you've got God's promise that He's going to do it, that that certainly fits very well with with what we've been talking about with the Northern Kingdom, particularly, and going back to Jeroboam the first, the the original king of the Northern Kingdom. Think about that sin that he led the people of Israel into. Jeroboam the first, he had the Lord's promise that look, you're going to rule over these ten tribes, and and if you are faithful, then then. They'll stay there. 
but the very first thing that he does is is the exact opposite. He he thinks like a, a politician rather than a, a pastor and thinks, oh, if my people go down to Jerusalem and they worship there, their allegiances will go back to the southern kingdom and not to me. So what will I do? I will put these two idolatrous shrines in my kingdom in in Dan and Bethel and and that will secure my my throne. And so it is that it's that same that same thing and it goes back to that original sin of Adam and Eve of pride thinking that that they know better than God and and this is the the sin that that still clings to us today that that thinking we know better than God and so so maybe here's another opportunity for for catechism connections with pastor Vandercook take us take us into this sure. sin of pride and the the first commandment pastor Vandercook well you know it, it goes back to still it appeals to our, our sinful flesh you know that we we have this desire to um, to be if you, if you will, just like what the serpent said to Adam and Eve, to be like God. Um, we want to be able to point to something that we have done uh, and and be proud of it. Uh, we want to be able to point to our accomplishments and say, look what I did. Um, and at times there is a place for that, I suppose. But um, but here, this is not uh, how the Lord, the Lord needs us to recognize the fact that um, we uh, what we are and who we are is not wrapped up in our pride and our accomplishments, but rather um, it is our identity is in Christ Jesus, who has made us his own, who has made us God's children. Uh, and so in that sense, there is no um, place for our, our our sinful pride to get in the way of something that uh, we can point to and say that I have accomplished this thing or something of that nature, but rather we recognize that all that we are, all that we have, uh, is from God, and He alone is the one who is able to um, uh, to to give us the good things that we have in this life. Yeah. yeah, no, and no wonder then that that the Lord speaks so strongly here when it comes to verse eight. This abhor He abhors the pride of Jacob. He hates his strongholds. This is this is a matter of the worship of of Him alone as God, the first commandment, and so He. He speaks very strongly. And as the, the text continues, then you, you see Amos with his very vivid imagery again concerning the, the judgment that the Lord is going to bring bring on. And it seems that, that he's tying back to some previous verses. So, Pastor Vandergrick, we have about three and a half minutes left here on this side of the break. Get us started into to verses nine and 10 here. Yeah, you know, in nine, uh, what came to mind at first when I read the beginning, or really all of chapter, or not chapter, verse 9 there, uh, if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. The first thing that popped into my mind was the negotiation that Abraham had in Genesis 18 on behalf of Sodom. Uh, you know, he negotiated and said, Lord, what if there's only, uh, and I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head right now, I don't have it open, but, uh, you know, if there's only 50 that are there that are, um, uh, if 50 righteous persons are found, will you spare it? You know, and eventually he negotiates it all the way down to 10, and the Lord promises that he will, uh, that yes, indeed, he will he will spare Sodom from that destruction. Um, here, there's not that type of hope at all. Uh, here, it's everybody dies. You know, if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. There's no survivors in this thing at all. Um, whereas, you know, in Genesis 18, there was this hope that was held out. Maybe there will be some faithful people here, but uh, the fact is that there are no faithful. Uh, that's how bad it's gotten in Israel is that there's there's no such thing as a faithful person that's found. Um, and there's also, uh, you know, this interesting um, uh I deal with the house here that talks about the ten men uh, remain in one house. You know, we've talked about it already, and that's the fact that uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Jeroboam the first, uh, that he had set up these um, uh, these uh, high places, these idols for the Israelites, the the northern kingdom to worship in Dan and in Bethel. Uh, and Bethel is interesting just for the sake of its name. Uh, the name Bethel means house of God. Uh, and so here we have this house where you have these folks that are gathered, uh, you know, for one reason or another. And now we have this uh, this house at Bethel, which was transformed from the house of God instead into a house of idolatry. 
uh, all of a sudden. And so we have that uh, perhaps a little bit of a play on words there with that word house. Uh, the other thing that could be going on with the word house is that uh, earlier in the chapter, we have this uh, this feast really that's being depicted in the uh, uh, around verses uh, five and six and so forth, where you have this feasting going on in the house. Well, the people have gathered at the house to celebrate, but what ends up happening instead is they end up dying in that house. Uh, and also, you have people that are feasting in the house, and then, uh, you know, as we go into verse 10 in particular, you talk about uh, what's left of these people that were feasting in the house. They're just bones now. Bring the bones out of the house. It's not even bring the, the bodies out of the house. We, we're just left with bones. Uh, so it's like the polar opposite of feasting is going on here as well. It's a very, very grim image. And either of those plays on words, again, is, is Amos taking something and turning it on its head. The people think they're going to the house of God where they will worship and live. Amos says, no, this is actually your death. Or or they're going to, to a house where they will be feasting and, and enjoying life. And again, Amos says, no, this, this is death for you. And, and we've seen, you know, Amos, Amos has used that word house over and over again in his book in those ways to, to speak judgment against the people. And we're seeing here again in Amos chapter six, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, November 11th. We are looking at Amos chapter 6, verses 8 through 14 with Pastor David Vandercook of Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vanderkirk, prior to the break, we were looking at, at verse 10, describing the, the grim irony that, that Amos has there, that where life should have been, there is death, and, and all in this house have died. And, and Amos pictures this conversation between someone who's going to, to bring some bones out of the house. What, what's going on with this conversation you get at the verse, end of verse 10? Yeah, uh, you know, he calls out into the innermost parts of the house. It says, "There is there anyone still, or is there still anyone with you?" Um, and the first thing, you know, you have this relative uh, that's going into the house, the one who anoints the people for burial. He's going in, and you see the extent of the destruction. First of all, and the fact that. He's going to this house of his relatives, and he doesn't even know how many people are still alive in there. Uh, usually, we can. Usually, it's not that hard to keep track of who's alive and who's not in our family. Uh, but it's gotten to the point where um, the death is is so bad that he he's lost track. You know, he's lost track of the fact these people have died. So, is there anyone still in there with you? He calls out, and the answer is no. And then you get this thing wherever he says. Uh, um, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Uh, and that, uh, that again, brings to mind, we think about the name of the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, and we think of the second commandment once again. Uh, and usually we say, this seems like the perfect time to call out for God's mercy, because uh, look at what's happening right here. But the Lord makes this illustration in this prophecy here uh, to show us that the time has passed for that, that, uh, that you know, uh, he had, they had the opportunity to cry out for his mercy, uh, but time has run out. Uh, the time of destruction has actually come at this point, and uh, there's, no, there's no consolation here for them anymore. It's, I mean, it's a very scary image, really, when you think about it, when you get to the point where uh, no longer can we call on the name of the Lord, because all it's going to do is bring... Um, uh, death to those who are under his curse, you know? Uh, so that's a terrifying picture. It really is. Maybe similar to in the New Testament where Jesus says, 
uh, I think it's in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mountain. It's, it's probably in a couple other places too, but he describes those who on the last day are are locked outside. And, and he pictures them crying out to him, Lord, Lord, and he utters, I never knew you. It's it's a very yeah. similar image here in, in Amos chapter 6, I think. Right, yeah, I, no, I, I fully agree. Yeah, that it's, uh, uh, it, it absolutely brings that to mind for sure, this idea of, uh, the Lord not knowing these people here, you know, they haven't known him and now he does not know them either. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, so again, I mean, we've got a, a connection to the, the second commandment here with this, this name of the Lord. I mean, what, what's the message for us, Pastor Vandercook? <laughs> well, call the name of the Lord now while you can. Uh, that's what I would say. You know, the Lord gives us his name uh, for us to pray, praise, and give thanks. Uh, and here, in the here and now, right now, that's what we ought to do. We ought to call upon the name of the Lord, uh, and we ought to keep uh, the second commandment also by um, avoiding uh, things that are false, false teaching and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, So we're not in that situation right now where we can't call upon the Lord's name. The Lord mm-hmm. continues to, to graciously uh, allow us to, um, uh, to call upon him, uh, in the day of trouble, with the promise that He will hear us uh, and answer our prayer. You know, it's the promise that's given to us in holy baptism that we are God's children, uh, and that because of that, we have uh, the privilege to call upon Him in prayer. And so, uh, we should take advantage of that because we we can right now. Right. So the the Lord here is describing something ahead of time, so that His people can avoid that. He He tells them right. what the judgment is that will come so that right now they can repent. That's the whole reason Amos was sent to preach. That's why Jesus says those things so that, so that, oh, is it, is it Paul in, in Romans chapter 10 can, can say everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think it, and Peter probably preaches that too. I think in the book of acts, right? That, that that's now is the day of salvation. So know what's coming so that right now you will call upon the name of the Lord in faith, in repentance, so that you will be saved instead of being in this awful situation that you've got here in, in Amos chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Yeah, who knows whether the Lord will relent, you know? Mm. Uh, you see in uh, in Jonah, you know, that Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, and and they, they repent, and then the Lord relents of the disaster he was going to bring. Uh, so yeah, all, you know, at the you know, in the prophecy itself, where the Lord writes this, of course, he's showing how time has run out for the Israelites, but that time is still in the future. You have a chance yet, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, there's still time to call upon the Lord. There's still time to repent and turn from your from your, uh, from your your evil ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, as, as the text continues, you, you get more talk of judgment. And and here in verse 11, then, the language of the house continues, but it is both the great house and the little house that are destroyed there in, in verse 11. How does is, how is the prophet continue his preaching here, Pastor Vandercook? Well, I think we're usually very, very comfortable with the idea of the rich and the powerful being um, brought low. You know, we hear that in the Magnificat, where um, Mary sings of that, you know. Uh, but here, the the idea is not just that it's not just that the um, uh, that the rich are brought low, that the powerful are brought low, or that uh, their their homes are destroyed or whatever. But uh, but it's rich and poor alike. It's the small house and the little house, uh, the great house and the little house is what it says. Yeah, it will be struck down into fragments, just utterly destroyed. Uh, so nobody spa- nobody is spared from this judgment here. It, it affects rich and poor alike, the powerful and the weak. Uh, nobody is uh, nobody has been uh, faithful in this case. Everybody is unfaithful. All are deserving of this judgment. So yeah, it's just a complete and utter destruction of the people. Mm-hmm. I I think that that's a helpful thing to notice here in verse eleven, to help us guard against a potential and not just potential but an actual misuse of this text, to think that it's it's only about outward behavior of the rich abusing the poor. We don't want to downplay that, that that's a reality. It was happening in Amos's time, and and it's something that we as God's people need to avoid, and we want to, to preach against. But there's more going on than just the outward behavior. It's not that the rich ones are the good guys and the poor ones 
or sorry, I said that backwards. The rich ones are the bad guys. The poor ones are the good guys. There's more going on, right, Pastor Vandercook? Yeah, definitely. You know, we have that same temptation when we talk about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke, I think, too, is that, uh, you know, initially we say, oh, well, the, you know, the reason that the rich man goes to hell and the poor man goes to heaven is because rich people are evil, you know, and uh, and, and the poor man is not. Poor people are good. Um, and, and, you know, as you said, we certainly want to be um, we want to love our neighbor. Uh, we want to uh, give out of our abundance, out of the gifts that God has given us, and we want to uh, provide for the needs of our neighbors, especially those who are in a great amount of need or a greater amount of need than we are. Uh, but here, really, it is it has to do with uh, faith and lack of faith. You know, um, it is it, you know the Lord looks not at uh, looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. Uh, and here the matter is is a matter of faith and no faith. And the fact is that none of these people have faith at all. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor. So then as, as the text continues, the Lord, through Amos, starts asking a couple of rhetorical questions, I would assume. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with, with oxen? What's going on with those two questions that he asks? Yeah, well, Amos is a shepherd, right? And so, I mean, he uses these uh, agricultural uh, pictures here, and it's, you know, it's these rhetorical questions. And of course, the answer is no, horses don't run on rocks, and no, uh, one doesn't plow on the rocks with oxen either. That's ridiculous. You wouldn't do that type of thing. So you have these good gifts that God has given, uh, gifts of justice and righteousness, and what the people of Israel have done is they've uh, they've turned these things into um, poison and wormwood, as it says. They're bad things. They've taken good things and made them bad. Uh, and so, you know, he really points out the foolishness, uh, you know, uh, what he says. Um, you know, Luther puts it this way. He has a quote from this from, uh, uh, from his uh, commentary on Amos. Uh, he says, those people are useless. They are not at all fit for which the Lord uses them. They are absolutely useless in every ministry of God. God has no use for them. Since he is so weary of them, he despises and rejects them. They no longer please him. Uh, so, you know, it's just a further illustration of the what the people have done. They're, they're just complete fools, and they, they really um, uh, they've turned the things that God has given them into uh, evil things. So the the two questions then function as ways. Look, you, you know what to do with horses and where they should run. You know where you should be plowing with oxen, but you you don't know what to do with justice and righteousness. Perhaps similar to the way when Jesus addresses, I, I think it's the Pharisees, and he says, "Look, you know how to read the sign of the times. You know what it means when the sky is a certain color in the evening, and what that means for the weather the next morning. But you you don't know how to read the sign of the times when it when it comes to to what I'm doing here." And so it's it's a similar idea here, maybe in, in the book of Amos, where you know how to treat these livestock. These things are obvious, and it should be just as obvious from the Lord's word what the good things are with righteousness and justice, but you've totally turned those things on its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Pastor Vandercook, is, is there maybe a, a catechism connection there in terms of the, the good things of God and, and turning them on their head? Well, you know, if you look at the, um, uh, the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, we have this, uh, this promise of daily bread. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's a long list, right? Uh, you have clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, um, um, well, now I'm getting mixed up with the first article of the creed, which is which is right, I suppose, because they are very similar lists. But there in the daily bread, you also get down to where it talks about good gov- good government, good weather, peace, health, and self control. Uh, I mean, it's it's just it's everything uh, you know that the Lord gives us. He is the source of all those things. Um, but uh, why does God, uh, you know, God gives us this daily bread, and and we are to receive that daily bread with thanksgiving. Uh, and recognize the fact that, as it says in the beginning of Luther's uh, meaning for the fourth petition, that uh, God gives daily bread even to all evil people. Uh, And so these gifts that he gives, these are good gifts, they're good things, uh, but we are to receive them with thanksgiving, and we are in turn to use them as God intended. Uh, And when we don't, 
we're turning again something that's good, uh, that is daily bread, and we're turning it into something that's evil. We're turning it on its head. We're turning it into a uh, um, uh, really a, a thing that does not bring uh, good into the world, but rather is used for evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you get these these two familiar terms again. We've seen these pop up in in Amos before, paired together, justice and righteousness. And again, as as we were saying earlier, when it comes to the the matters of of rich and poor, those two terms aren't only about what we are to do, not only the justice that we would give to others, the righteous acts that we would do for others, but they start with the justice that comes from God, that he justifies us, and the righteousness that comes from God that he gives to us for the sake of of his son. And so they've they've turned these things entirely upside down. They've turned God's gifts, both of, of the first table and the second table, entirely upside down, and, and everything is is backwards, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, an appropriate, uh, appropriate to talk about that, you know, is we're um, just coming off of All Saints Day, where we talk about in particular uh, righteousness and the righteousness that's bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus, the the robes of righteousness that he clothes us in, as we think about in uh, Revelation, those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, And uh, the reason that the Lord uh, gives us that righteousness is that, uh, well, for one, to grant us salvation, but also that we might uh, express that in our dealings with the rest of the world as well. Uh, you know, the fruits of the faith that come from that. So, uh, yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. And and that, I mean, that comment, too, taking me back to the, takes me back to the, the second commandment, the name of God, and also then the name of God comes up in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. And and there yeah. the explanation teaches us, well, what does it mean for God's name to be holy? It, it means that his word would be taught rightly among us. And it also means that we would lead holy lives according to that word. And so those those two things, again, are, are connected. And we've seen that throughout Amos 2. He connects the matter of right worship and faith with right living. And when you mess up one, the other is going to suffer as well. And so the prophet continually calls the people back on both fronts, back to the right worship and faith, which will lead to then the right living. And, and those those things just, I mean, they continue to be intimately connected here in the book of Amos. So then, Pastor Vandercook, we get into verses 13 and 14, and, and we get some some place names that that probably a little are a little unfamiliar to us. And and probably the prophet chooses these place names uh, not on accident. There's more going on than just doing a bit of geography here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I mean, it is notable, of course, again, we're, we talk about the context of these, the, the historical context of these verses, and you do have the fact that uh, Israel has enjoyed this military success. And so the place names that are mentioned are places at the uh, first of all, in verse 13, uh, the, you know, at the very far end of the northern kingdom. And then when you get to the end of verse 14, uh, we talk about the far southern end of the northern kingdom, the border with Judah. Excuse me. But uh, the um, the other thing that's happening here is that you have, uh, and I didn't notice this at first because I just did a word search in the English, but uh, Lodabar uh, shows up in other places in the Old Testament. You find it um, uh, in particular in connection with Meshibosheth, uh, Jonathan's son, who was living there with uh, Machir, the son of Amiel, before David brought him into his household in 2 Samuel 9. Uh, you know, so you have, it, you have it connected there a little bit with Israel, but that's really the only other time you hear about it. But the thing that doesn't come out in an English translation is that there's actually a difference in spelling here in Amos than where it's spelled elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, Lo to bar, uh, and it's hard to it's hard to do this on radio, I guess. But uh, uh, d a b a r means nothing. That's the way it's spelled here in Amos, and we have the Masoretes, of course, to thank for this difference. Otherwise, we'd have no clue, I suppose. But uh, the original name is Lo Debar, D-E-B-A-R, and that one letter changes the name of the word, changes the or the name of the um, 
the city from uh, on one hand when it was spelled d e b a r means no pasture which was probably just an agricultural notation that there was you know either you shouldn't pasture your animals here or there is no pasture here for your animals or something like that uh but here whenever it's changed to low de bar d a b a r that means nothing uh and so you have the lord really in this prophecy mocking the people uh, you know, because again, they're saying, have we not, as it says in verse 13, have we not by our own strength uh, done all of this? And it talks about Karnaim also, but, uh, you know, and we can talk about that in a moment. But at least with Lodabar, uh, you have this, this city that the name has been changed to nothing to illustrate the fact that you, you guys think that you've actually accomplished something here. You really don't have anything. You have nothing. Uh, you know, so it's, yeah, it's 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 really the Lord mocking the people here, and it's it's really quite a uh, it's something that you would miss, I suppose, at first glance for sure. Sure, yeah. Again, Amos is is making use of of satire and sarcasm. We've seen him do that earlier in the book, where where again he's he's taking things and turning them on their head. Here, the Lord tells his people, "You think you did something? Really, you did." Nothing, and so then um, Car- Karnaim or, or Karnaim, how, um, you, you're probably pronouncing it right, Pastor Vandercook. <laughs> what's really what's the know. significance? <laughs> <laughs> what's the significance of that city, however it's pronounced? <laughs> yeah, well, the thing with pronunciation, I always tell people just make it sound like you know what you're talking about, and nobody's going to question. That's right, you, right? Yeah, but right. Uh, yeah, Karnaim. Uh, it, it means it, it means horns, uh, and and a lot of people probably have this as a footnote in the bottom of the ESV translation. I know it's there. It's a symbol of strength, you know, horns or strength or something like that. And again, it gets back to this idea that Israel's putting their trust in their own strength. Uh, that's where their trust is. Their trust is not their fear, love, and trust is not in God, uh, but rather it's in their own strength. Uh, again, a first commandment connection, if you will, there. Uh, rather than trusting in what God is doing, they said, look at what we did. We, we accomplished uh, this military goal, this objective of, of capturing these cities uh, by our own might, by our own strength, Karnaim. Uh, you know, and so we have this, uh, uh, this, this thing that we're, we're, again, boasting in our own merits rather than um, boasting in what God has done for us. So then in verse 14, the, the Lord announces a, a rather ominous judgment. I will raise up against you a nation. And and this is about as close as Amos gets to announcing how the Lord is going to do this judgment against his people historically. What do we have there in verse 14, Pastor Vandercook? Yeah, the agent of God's judgment, the specific agent anyway, is not revealed. Um, but we see the fulfillment of this prophecy when the Lord does destruct, uh, brings about destruction for the Israelites by the hand of the Assyrians. Um, and, and it's a complete destruction. That's illustrated by the words there, of course. You know, they'll oppress you from Labo Hamath, which actually is not even under Israelite control. It's actually north of the border for northern um, for the northern kingdom all the way down to the brook of Arabah, uh, or the Wadi of Arabah, I think is another translation for that. But it's, uh, but at any rate, it shows just the completeness of this destruction that's going to come. It's not just that they're going to invade and, and cause a little bit of trouble up there in the north. They're actually going to completely overtake the entire land um, in this whole thing. But yeah, at this particular point in history, uh, Assyria is, is not even really is not really even a significant nation at this point in time. They would not have been viewed as a threat uh, even, but of course that's all going to change as time goes forward. So, so yeah, the Lord um, here is, is announcing uh, the destruction that's coming by the hand of a nation, but he doesn't designate who it is. But of course we do see what happens uh, when the Assyrians do take the, uh, the Northern kingdom later on. And really for that matter, it does affect the Southern kingdom too, because the Southern kingdom is going to be under their control. Um, uh, even if they're not having completely invaded the Southern kingdom. The, the matter of, of Amos not actually naming Assyria here is perhaps even a bit more, um, it's it's rhetorically excellent, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in the sense that as Israel would have looked around itself at this time, hearing Amos preach this, I will raise up a nation, right? Well, they're looking around, who's that going to be, Amos? We're, we're doing pretty good yeah. here right now, you know? I mean, yeah. 
what you think Assyria is going to do that? And, you know, you can kind of get the idea. Amos just kind of like nodding in the back of his head sort of thing. Yeah. The matter, the Lord invites his people to, to hear his word and believe it, right? Which is what they haven't been doing. And so the fact that Amos doesn't actually name Assyria now, now Assyria does get named by other contemporary prophets or prophets that come right after Amos. Um, and we'll see the prophets do that. But the fact that he doesn't do it here, I think just as, it's all the more telling as to to what's going on maybe inside the the people's minds here. Pastor Vandercook, we got got three minutes left on the morning. Uh, you're welcome to respond to that if you want, or or kind of summarize the morning for us. Yeah, well, no, I think that was I think that was quite good to, to to mention the fact that they they wouldn't know their exact oppressor, who the one was going to be to bring the destruction, because. Uh, they probably were thinking, well, we're a pretty powerful country. Nobody can oppose us anyway. Who do we have to worry about? Uh, looking around at the nations that surrounded them, uh, they were pretty powerful at that point in time. So it probably, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying there with that old thing. Um, I was going to talk a little, uh, you know, the the verse that comes to mind uh, when I look at this is uh, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. You know, as the baptized, uh, in both individually and corporately as the church, we, of course, have the assurances of sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. Uh, but we also have to always defend ourselves against the temptation of the evil one. And that temptation is to trust in our own efforts rather than in the promises of God. Uh, you know, as Paul writes in Romans twelve three. By the grace given to me, I, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Uh, and, and again, this whole deal with um, daily bread, um, right there in the meaning to the fourth petition, Luther says, God certainly gives daily bread to everyone, even to all evil people. And here in this case, Israel, that's the evil people. And they're receiving this daily bread. Uh, just because we have material success uh, in this world, that's not the proof that God loves us. Um, because if that's the proof that God loves us, then um, if we don't have uh, material success, if we uh, are are struggling financially or whatever. If we're having just difficulty uh, making it in the world, uh, then that that communicates that God doesn't love us. Uh, but that's not how we determine what how God feels about us. Rather, we root God's promises in His Word uh, and in the promises He bestows in, uh, on us in Christ Jesus, not in the successes that we uh, perceive to be products of our own efforts in this world. And that's that's what was going on with the Israelites then, is that uh, they were trusting again uh, and seeing the gifts that they had and saying, well, obviously God loves us and, and we're fine because look at how much success we've had. Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas, helping us this morning with Amos 6, verses 8 through 14. Pastor Vandercook, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.